Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Sports Rehab Lab. We want our listeners to know this podcast is for general information purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are our own and do not represent those of our respective employers, affiliated institutions, or organizations. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on the episode description of this podcast and on our website. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about advanced rehab for the hamstring complex. When do we start rehabbing hamstrings after injury? Do biologics have any positive effect on rehab? And what's the normal post-surgical recovery after a proximal hamstring repair? Let's go. Welcome to the Sports Rehab Lab Podcast, where you'll hear real talk from real clinicians who treat real sports patients. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Sports Rehab Lab with our... Regular crew, a little bit uh, skeletonized today, but our regular crew, including myself, Snape Patel, Terrence Scroy, Pat Vignona, and Billy Maroney. Robbie is off tonight, enjoying a vacation, so maybe he'll call in today. Hopefully, he won't where he is, and Jamie Osmack is off tonight. So one of our early episodes was on hamstring strains and how we treat them. Uh, we didn't go a lot of, in, into a an in-depth detail on that episode, but, you know, we just did mostly an introduction on hamstring rehab in general. And that episode actually got a lot of traction. We got a lot of questions, how we progress through rehab for our hamstring strains. And then we got a lot of questions on post-op hamstring rehab and, you know, the addition of biologics and return to running, return to sport. And then one of the biggest questions we got, which is, you know, really important was returning to sport for people, making sure that they can return to sport without like a follow-up injury, which is, I think, the magic question for all injured body parts when we're trying to return to sport. So without doing this follow-up episode on hamstring strains, talking about non-op and then post-op would be a good follow-up episode for all of our listeners. So, you know, we know that most often injured hamstring muscle is the biceps femoris. This is most of the time. And, you know, this is the muscle that's most commonly injured. You can tell from MRI, ultrasound, those are the most common ways to diagnose it with testing. So, you know, I'm going to start this off with Pat, you know, to talk to us. Like you have a soccer player coming in. They call you today and they say they strained their hamstring. Uh, you know, when when do you want them to come in and how are you handling these just initial stages of rehab. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it needs to be isolated to a soccer player. I think any of the the, the, the high-speed, change of direction, change of pace, sport, you, you'll see this. And like you said, you know, it is most likely the biceps fem, but, you know, I mean, it could also be uh, the semi-T or the semi-membranosis as well. Um, but having imaging and knowing exactly which which group is injured will help your your treatment process um but like you asked about like when they should start and it's and it's right away it's you know within you know two or three days if they're actually uh, you know a real athlete and they, and they want to get better faster because it's not a sit and wait let it heal and then start reloading it eventually it's 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 as tolerated and you have to you know part of your first evaluation is figuring out what they can do um 
and letting them do that because you know load and and some um functional stretching like like walking will help this heal much much quicker um yeah but knowing knowing the exact tissue where i know we'll talk about this as we go on but like where the actual injury is is it intratendon is it you know um more proximal more in the middle um that will help you develop a plan going forward like you said i think the you know, some people say that we overimage everything. Um, for these injuries, I've seen imaging be very helpful. I mean, to your point, Pat, I yeah. think one, knowing what muscle is involved, but then also two, the exact location. So is it pure tendon? Is it muscle tendon junction or is it fascia? Right? Because exactly. those three will be treated differently and I'm sure at much different speeds, right? So you're when you're designing your programs you're trying to outline your rehab uh you'll probably do those at different paces depending on the exact location of injury no doubt um billy is there a role of biologics for biologics some of these non-op ones is there any support for that yeah i mean i think we were talking about this before it's definitely limited um i, I forget the author there was an old study i think it was like in 2015 like a bgsm one it was a pretty big study but there was no benefit um, and using PRP and kind of treatment of a hamstring. I think clinically it's something that is often used. Like I, I came across one today, just say a consensus statement from a bunch of the team physicians in the NFL. I think they met a couple of years back and it was a survey based study, a Delphi study. And they were looking at what percentage of them thought there was a positive effect of PRP. And I think it was right around ha- uh, 50%. So it was, I think 48% advocated for, for there was a positive effect. And then the other 52 or whatever, not convinced. So I think even in the high-level sport, it's kind of out there. So Dr. Bradley's published his data a couple years back in which they looked at, I think it was 30 people who have uh, players who had PRP injections and 39 who did not. Those numbers may be off a couple or so, but the point remains the same. I think their conclusions was if you look at just the statistics, it wasn't statistically significant in, as far as a, a sped-up return of play, but they did acknowledge that it was three, three-and-a-half days faster, which when you think about a sport like this, any any extra time that can be cut off, may be meaningful. So I think we'd need a far bigger number of athletes, but like these little advantages that you may or may not get from this stuff, if it, if it does help, it may justify the use in, in, in a situation like that where cost is not a factor, right? So I think for your average day, high school kid or whatever, you're probably not going to need PRP. They, the, the days, one or two days doesn't make a big difference, but there may be a role. I just don't think it's it's been as well studied as we need to yet based on small samples and some of the, the FDA regulations and whatnot on kind of study this stuff and preparing cultures and all that. So I, th- I think with PRPs and biologics, it, it, they don't show any detrimental effects. You know, they have only shown sure. positive things. They just don't know how positive it is. So, you know, if you come across a person who's gotten PRP or some kind of other biologic, I think you just have to make sure that you uh, account for that when you're doing your rehab, as in, you know, you just want to make sure you're letting that injection do its thing. Uh, and sometimes that means, you know, waiting a little bit to do some modalities like ice or something like that. But I think you just have to be aware when something like that is on board. B- Billy, is that are those PRP, is that PRP leukocyte rich or leukocyte poor? The Bradley study was uh, leukocyte poor. Ooh, I was just kidding. I didn't know. I think you knew the answer. Yeah. I was I the, the other <laughs> issue, PRP, and we'll see this a lot with our professional players, is that it is going to incite an inflammatory reaction, right? So if you wait two weeks and get a PRP 
injection for soft tissue injury, you're probably going to set the player back a little bit and the rehabs can take longer. So I think the thought process now is if you are thinking PRP that you should get it day one or as close to day one as possible so that your progression is not slowed because of it. Yeah. And that's consistent. They did it in the first 24, 48 hours after an injury for that same reason. You don't want to delay anything. Um, what do you think about role? So for your non-ops before we get to post-op, so for your non-ops, like when do you start isometrics, concentrics? What are your thoughts on eccentrics, Pat? Like how do you, how do you incorporate those or layer those into your uh, rehab progressions? I meant, I mean, I mentioned it earlier, meaning like the, that, that first day you see them, you know, you have to establish a baseline. Obviously you have to take all your general musculoskeletal measurements and stuff, but also you have to establish a baseline exercise tolerance. Um, so the things that they can do that doesn't necessarily, I mean, we'll talk about the, the pain threshold later on too, but whatever they can do, you should be doing it and you should be doing it early on and you should be progressing it, you know, every two or three days, um, going forward. As far as like isometrics, concentric, eccentrics, I think they're all important. Um, we can go into the eccentric talk now if you want, but as far as isometrics, I mean, I feel like a broken record saying this, but you guys worked with me for a long time. I've, you know, isometrics at every different angle, every different angle of knee flexion, I think is, is vital and doing proper amount of time in those isometrics and proper amount of, uh, load as well. Not just a feather holding it there, but actually making them work a little bit, um, is super important. Uh, as far as eccentrics, there's plenty of studies out there. There was one in 2022 in BJSM that showed that the use of eccentrics did not speed up their return to play time, but it's been proven a bunch of other times. The use of eccentrics does help with bicep femoris uh, fascicle lengthening, and it keeps it there for longer, even at six months post-injury. Uh, so it doesn't speed it up, but but it'll, it'll help you um, prevent this, try to help prevent this injury uh, going forward. You know, Pat, I wanted to ask you, like, Hickey out of Australia does a lot of work with hamstring strains and rehabs. And, you know, his thought was, you know, if a person could take it, adding on eccentrics in the early phases would be very helpful for them, you know, rather than the traditional, let's go through isometrics, then, you know, let's go through concentrics, and then let's go through eccentrics. You know, how do you feel about that incorporating? Because, you know, like, he had incorporated eccentrics in some of these individuals. I, I think it was a rugby cohort that, you know, sometimes it was three to five days out from their injury and he incorporated eccentrics then. Is that something you're a proponent of if they can do it? Or do you like to use the traditional method of going step by step? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's you can ask three different people and get three different answers here. Um, I think that involving some type of eccentric load in that early phase with when I was talking about getting your baseline uh, of your exercise in that first phase of the rehab. And if they can tolerate it, I mean, I don't see why not if it's not making it worse. Um, it's not hurting at least. Um, but if you look at like Aspatar, obviously a big soccer. Um, if you want any good real research, you got to go to like Australia, BJSM, Aspatar, because that's that's the, the they really look at that a lot. And, and they start their eccentrics in their their stage three of the rehab um which could be any they say anywhere from 14 to 28 days uh granted it's soccer so you have to take that with a grain of salt because these they they do 
um, the time off is a lot longer in soccer just because of the demands of the sport. Um, it's not just a few sprints. It's, you know, it's constant sprinting for 90 minutes. So it's a little bit different. Uh, so long story short, yes, I would. I have a low threshold to get rid of it early if, if they're not tolerating it well. Um, and start with isometrics, move the concentric, and then eventually go to eccentrics. I think you often find too, j just because they're eccentric doesn't mean people aren't going to, I mean, they're not necessarily always harder. So you got to look at other variables too, like the position you put them in, the sure. the resting muscle length when you start them. So like a long lever hamstring bridge may be harder than a, a glute bridge where you go down eccentrically into a, like an eccentric hamstring curl, right? So sometimes it, it's just motor contraction as one variable. You got to look at muscle length and time under tension and all these other things. And like Pat said, often you can find some level that they can come in at and do that. And that's kind of what they did in, in some of those studies. They started with just like a, a bridge where you go from a glute bridge and slowly decrease your knee flexion angle into extension and then yep. go down and just to the eccentric component first. So yeah, I think if you can try to promote that eccentric contraction to get some of the, the muscle architecture characteristics, you can do it at different exercises and then gradually build up towards Nordics and some of the more talked about things down the road. Yeah, I think that's what happens is people hear eccentrics and they immediately think Nordics and we're doing Nordics. 100%, yeah. You know, week one out of out of after an injury and it's it's not. You can anything you do concentrically, you can 100% do eccentrically. I think a, a totally. good, a good do you, do you eccentric exercise is Do you want to go Pat? Or? I didn't, I the, I heard two questions at once. We'll, we'll, which one? We'll be on with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go with the running. Let's go with the running. Yeah, let's go with the running. Let's go with the running. It's a common question. So when do you let your players start to run? Like, what are you looking for? Uh, tolerance. I think uh, as soon as they can, they can walk normal and they, and they have that below a four pain threshold. Um, you know, Aspitar does have some specific criteria, but I'm not, I'm not going to dive into that. But, you know, if you think about it, like the, typically these, this injury happens at sprinting. And it's a bicep fem. So like a light jog really isn't very stressful at all on the bicep femur. If it's a bicep femoris, which it most likely is. Um, so, I mean, there's no reason why you can't starting them jogging, you know, after, you know, seven to 10 days post-injury. Uh, when I say jogging, I mean like, you know, 5.0 on a treadmill, just like a light jog, just to get some stress through there. And yeah, through everywhere else, like right? That. You keep your calf and knee and everything. You don't want to deload everyone for, for other things. 100%. Yeah. I think that, that just like what you said, starting them off with like a, a walk, jog, run protocol, and then gradually, yeah. gradually increasing it depending on, you know, how the person's doing. So, you know, I'm a big proponent on like what you said, I'm not in a pain free region, but you know, saying like, what, what is, I think that's the biggest thing with a hamstring strain is having the athlete be honest about, okay, how much is your pain so that we can gauge it? Because I'm not of the school of thought that you have to be at zero out of 10 in order to start these things up. Uh, you know, we, I think we just discussed it before, like being within like a, a three or four out of 10 to, to do these activities. I think it's, it's okay for them to progress with those pain levels. Uh, but yeah, running, listen, if you can, you can walk without pain, then there's no reason that you can't start jogging right away as well. Yeah. And you also have to think about it. If this is their first injury versus their third injury in the last six months. And obviously if it's, if it's a re-injury, especially within that same season, whatever timeframes that we're talking about right now, kind of trash it and it's going to be, it's going to be a lot longer. So then someone pops their hamstring, goes into the OR. <clears throat> What's this look like now? 
So what kind of, uh, what kind of rehab process or initial timeframes being discussed with this player? Or I guess even before that. So when would someone be deemed like, like that they failed conservative rehab? When, when are you seeing when these non-ops turn into an operative patient in a non-traumatic case? Is that happening or no? It, it is. I think that, you know, they, especially here in, in the U.S., we're, we're much more conservative with trying to fix these. Uh, if, if you go to Europe, especially in Finland as a guy who does these, the soft tissue hamstring repairs, as opposed to that bony attachment, proximal hamstring repair. Um, they're a little quicker to pull that trigger. Um, but but here in the States, you'll see, you know, guys out for, or and girls out for, you know, three, four months and they come back at that, you know, five month mark. And all of a sudden you see it all the time. I think Cooper cup happened to him last year. He came back two, three months after injury and then re-injured it again. Um, I think once that happens, I think you have to seriously consider uh, a more aggressive approach, i.e. surgery. So they get um, hamstring. So say they actually had a traumatic event and avulsed their proximal hamstring. So what does their initial rehab look like? Are they in a splint? Are they in uh, a brace? And if so, for how long? So usually the first six weeks is super conservative. Uh, usually right afterwards, they're put in a, you know, a lot of doctors still use a knee brace that's in uh, an amount of flexion just so they're not putting tension on that hamstring. Usually like about 20 pounds, toe touch, uh, you know, no active knee flexion, you know, no hamstring contractions. It's really like that first six weeks is like, listen, you're just letting this thing heal. Uh, one of the doctors at our institution has been using the same protocol for a while. And I think, you know, the, the first exercises are it's rest, let it heal, absets, you know, isometric hip, AB, adduction, you know, quad sets, ankle pumps, you know, some light, light massage, you know, maybe some scar massage at that point if it's needed. But Usually for the first six weeks, it's it's really let it heal. It's kind of like, you know, just like what you say with your rotator cuffs, like you got to let the tissue heal before you start start doing stuff from it. So, you know, for these athletes that come in, if they really need to come in and do something, it's more like upper body, you know, UBE, you know, doing some upper body work, but really letting that leg, uh, you know. I would, I would, I would say it's very heal. similar to like, very similar to like a hip scope, like the first two weeks of a hip scope rehab and you just – you know, make that longer. And it's pretty close to that. What are you trying to avoid? I mean, what do we not want to do with these players early on when we're waiting for this healing to happen? Any positions we're avoiding? After surgery or? or yeah, initial post-op. Yeah, you, you definitely don't want to stretch the hamstring at all. <laughs> Zero. Yeah. Because that's going to pull right on the bone. And, you know, like we all know bone, the bony attachment heals at four to six weeks. So, and it, and I it's think never that's really get, and it's the... never really getting the full rest either because you, do sit and you do, you know, you could irritate that spot back there. And the sciatic nerve also runs right there as well. So there's a lot, a lot of considerations there. It's not, not an easy, mm -hmm. not an easy, you know, one, two, three type of surgery. So how about supplements? How are we going to help this thing heal? Any magic uh, powders that these, these players are taking that's going to speed up their healing process first couple of weeks while they can't do anything else. Yeah. Don't drink alcohol. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Smoke. Uh, Probably don't, uh, right soccer players yeah. smoke or, or dip mm. like baseball players. We've had issues in the past with some of the baseball players with just nicotine 
and how it's actually mm-hmm. impacted or anecdotally impacted some of the healing processes. Uh, but you don't think about that, right? Obviously, smoking we know is bad, but um, the dipping being a, uh, a big issue in MLB. I wasn't sure what what do soccer players do. Yeah, no, do it's not like it's that? not nearly as prominent no. in in baseball. But I think if you go to the Scandinavian countries and some European, they they do like a like a snooze. It's very similar to dip, but it's not nearly as. I mean, you can't run around and play with it, so it's a little different. <laughs> so first first six weeks, fine. You know, we're keeping things controlled, locked in the uh, locked in the brace. Uh, and then what happens? Nay, brace comes off after six weeks, and they're and doing what kind of stuff? Gra- gradual, you know, return to regular everyday life. Uh, you know, usually that's when you start doing a lot more weight bearing. Uh, you know, gradual weight bearing, like starting at fifty percent, then seventy five, then hundred. Uh, starting some concentric knee flexion against gravity. This is when, you know, this is when we get into when you compare it to a hip scope. It's kind of like weeks three to four of a hip scope. So like you can start doing some quad rocking, some weight shifts, uh, you know, start to do a little bit more, uh, a little bit more strengthening. This is kind of where, you know, usually within this like six to 12 week time is, you know, you can start to put someone on the leg press, uh, you know, with light weight, usually probably, you know, like week nine or 10, you want to start doing that. Uh, but again, it's a gradual improvement. Like I think usually from week six to 12 is where you're just gradually starting to, you know, get them up to that full weight bearing position, have them do like regular everyday activities, but you're still not stressing that tissue to the max. Uh, you know, a lot more soft tissue at this point to get things loosened up in that hamstring, uh, not any aggressive scar massages. And I know there's probably some people asking like, oh, you know, they can't do a lot. What about BFR? I've asked Pat about this. You know, I think I feel the same way. I'm not a huge fan of BFR for a proximal hamstring repair just because the cuff's got to go proximal. It's probably going to be at that point where the incision is. Again, I personally, I just don't feel like there's a lot of return on my investment if I'm putting any kind of BFR on them. Pat, Billy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the risk-reward on BFR for, yeah. for proximal hamstring repairs is more on the risk for me. Like I said before, the sciatic nerve literally runs right next to it, and you get that irritated, and that now you're fighting you know, two different fronts of a war there, and that's the last thing you want to do. But to, to, when you're talking about like the loading before, usually about 10 to 12 weeks, that's when you start to reload that, that isolate, that hamstring a little bit more. Um, that's where you start playing with iso- you know, shorter arc isometrics, progressing mm-hmm. to longer arc isometrics. And that's usually it's early. It's 10 weeks. Normally it's like more like 12 weeks. What kind of complications are people seeing early on in this? I mean, I think Pat, like you mentioned, um, just now the sciatic nerve runs in close proximity to that tendon. And then obviously a reasonable scar up in the, proximal side by the attachment i mean i've read issues or read about issues or potential complications sciatic nerve is that a thing and if it is how do you manage that early on or what are you doing with your patients to try and limit sciatic nerve issues yeah i mean i think paying very close attention to it and trying to recognize trying to differentiate the the pain from the surgery versus like like a like a nerve type pain because uh, you really can't do neural gliding because that would be like a hamstring, you know, like a seated slump test or something like that. You can't do that 
for at least, you know, eight weeks. Um, I think doing very um, cautious slash, you know, delicate soft tissue massage there, meaning like almost like mobilizing the the scar underneath uh, and trying to separate some tissue in there, Um, not allowing the scarring to leak into that sciatic track. Uh, I think the other complication that gets pretty commonly un, uh, not seen is that the infection. Because, I mean, think about where that incision is and think about what you do there. And bad things can seep into that spot. And you just have to be very cautious of that. If someone presents with sciatic nerve symptoms after 10 weeks, are you having them do nerve glides at that point? Yeah. Simple answer. Gotcha. What about uh, what about in this population, Pat? Like you know, proximal hamstring repair, looking good, everything's going all right. When do you usually start these people back to jogging slash running? I mean, if you tip, typical proximal hamstring repair population is what it's you know it's forty five to sixty year olds, um, slip and falls or very very rarely will will it be like a super athletic you know, runner or something we like had that. A, a Mets pitcher a couple of years ago, sprinting out of the box after making contact with the ball, light ground really? ball. I think the shortstop first step out of the box, pop. God. Yep. That's I think uh, he got a little excited when he actually made contact and uh, avulsed, avulsed it. So yeah. So someone like that high level, if you yeah, had a I'm, high level player come in, when do you let them start running? Yeah. I mean, 14 weeks I've had that happen. 14, plyos. 16 weeks in the alter G. How about Definitely. plyos? You're having an early discussion with this player trying to plan out their uh, progression. They want general time frames. When generally will you start plyos with them? I would start plyos with them prob- likely before I would start running with them. I feel like running is going to challenge that hamstring a little bit more than you know regular ladders or just like stationary jumps. And back in game, so back on the pitch for one of your boys. It's a great question. Six months earliest. Hmm. Yeah. 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 All right. What do you guys think? I think most most of the time it's I don't know, anywhere between six and nine. I think six yeah. at the the earliest if they're looking great, but you know it like really depends on perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think like everything Which, else, right? It's three months of soft tissue healing, so you've got to let that heal for three months, where you're not putting it through significant load and strain. You're not doing a ton of high intent work. And then you need a couple months to build them up from there and then work through all their sports specific progressions and drills. So, I mean, that right there takes you to six months. So, I mean, obviously there's a case from speeding things up a little bit, but I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. Biology is biology. Yeah. And also if you do, if you do that again, it's, it's probably over. <laughs> You're not going to come back from that twice. Yeah. It's it's kind of like you, you got to, it takes that long to do it. And then remember, if it's some high level athlete, you're going to have to get them back to sprinting, which is, it just takes time. So, you know, you, this is one of those surgeries that you definitely don't want to skip steps in or say like, Hey, you look, you look okay. Uh, you know, Pat, what do you use for metrics at the end of the day for someone to return to sport? Uh, well, they have to, you, you just kind of, you just mentioned it. I think the high speed sprinting during the rehab process is probably the most important part of this. Um, 
flexible. I mean, you, obviously you're going to do like flexibility, like a uh, max hip flexion, terminal knee extension. Uh, you can do the askling test, uh, which is just an, an aggressive straight leg raise with any apprehension. They wouldn't be able to do it. Um, you, there's, you know, it's a toss up with, you know, getting back to your uninjured side strength. I mean, obviously you're probably going to do it, but is it warranted? When I think that's up in the air and Billy can probably cite research better than I can on that. Um, but really it's, it's tolerance to high speed running and progressively building them into that, like, you know, running 95 to hundred percent of their pre-injury speed for 20 minutes, you know, two or three days in a row, then you can start thinking about putting people back on the, on the pitch as Terrence would say. I think that's the big thing too there, Pat, is it's not just getting back to high speed running. It's accumulating some level of volume there before you're correct. You're going into full fatigue settings and all that. Yeah. And there's some papers that kind of show GPS data before an injury and after an injury, and they don't quite build back up to that, that GPS volume in a game that they're going to need. So you really got to accumulate some load there. It can't just be a week of sp- sprinting there. You need probably whatever, three, four weeks of, of dosing it up to your, your previous distance yeah, and, if possible. And, and then, and then isokinetic, you know, eccentrically or concentrically tests that, you know, it's just a snapshot of one test. It's not looking at what, how viable that tissue is after playing for 45 minutes or 50 minutes. So it is totally. a real, I mean, we talk a lot about strength. I think it's tough in this setting too. Like there, there's probably not one great way to, to strength test. I know the Nord boards talked about, we have a biodex. We use the force frame a little bit. Like I think, um, it's probably not something where you can like in other areas, people try to hang their hat on one, one type of test, but you re- you really got to use decision-making and, and just maybe a strength measurement to guide you a little bit, but it's, it goes far beyond that in this kind of injury. I think there's a lot of functionality that's with this injury. Like, you know, you can test strength, you can test motion, but again, it's how is that person functionally looking are they able to do the things that they need to do? I.e running you know i think that's a a huge thing like they need to make sure that they can run multiple days in a row without aggravating that tissue and you know i think sometimes i i always cite hickey but i think he even said like hey listen there there are some strength deficits at the end of the day that you see isometrically with some of these athletes uh but functionality they're back doing what they need to do so i think you know like you said it's 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 not one thing to look at it's it's a lot of different things it's just matching the demand of the sport. And I think we talk about this with all of our rehab progressions. We've talked about in this podcast before, but what does that athlete need to get back to doing? What's the volume? What's the speed? What's the intensity? And have you matched that in the rehab process? Yes or no. And if you haven't, then I think you're putting them at risk if you're setting them back. And I think that's a big, big part of the progression. A lot of people miss, I think just with sports rehab in general is, you know, sometimes in rehab, it's hard to match the speed and the intensity, which is why they need to go through the whole practice progression and ramp up through that. But if you skip that step, then who knows? I mean, close your eyes, cross your fingers, and this one's on you. All right, Billy, Billy, I think you get the hot seat today. You're taking it. You're taking it today. You got an easy one. There's only, there's only three of us. So, I'll go with Pat first. Pat, if you can attend the finale of any sporting event in the world, what would it be? World Cup. World Cup? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Here at MetLife. Let's go. See that announcement today? There you go. You might have a shot. Oh, yeah, World yeah, Cup yeah. finals yeah. at MetLife. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, Terrence, if um, if you could work in another professional sport other than baseball full-time, what would you do? Curling. 
Okay, I, I thought that actually. Olymp- Olympic team. <laughs> no, I. I uh, you get paid well. I don't know. Maybe maybe the NBA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fit in. yeah fit NBA. In. I've yeah. been getting into this lately. I mean, the Knicks are on fire. All of a sudden, my son's a, a Brunson Die fan. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah. All right, I'm gonna go with that, Snape, for you. For um, New York team, next New York team to get a, a championship out of these three: the Mets, the Knicks, and the New York Rangers. Who gets a, a championship oh. first? Couldn't ask Terrence because he's gonna say Lindor. Yeah, he's gonna say Francisco. Pete Alonso. Uh, man. <laughs> Man, the Rangers. Are the best I gotta go. I gotta go with the Rangers. I gotta go with the Rangers. I, I, you know, there was a toss up between the Knicks a little, but the Knicks sometimes they just yeah they're they're gonna look good this year, and then playoffs are gonna come. And then, great. Yeah, that's just just not gonna happen. Well, thanks guys. This was a great conversation. Hopefully, everybody liked it. Remember, like, subscribe, DM us on our Instagram page if you have any questions, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Sports Rehab Lab podcast. Please like and subscribe on both Spotify and Apple. And if you can, leave us up to a five-star review as well. We would greatly appreciate that. If you have questions for us or comments about the podcast or guests you'd like us to consider, DM us on our Instagram page at at Sports Rehab Lab. We read all of our comments so your messages are always being heard. The Sports Rehab Lab podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of physical therapy, medicine, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The views, opinions, and approaches expressed in this podcast by our hosts, guests, and contributors do not represent those of their respective employers, affiliated institutions, or organizations. We encourage our listeners to use their discretion and consider multiple sources of information when making decisions regarding sports medicine, fitness, or health. Listeners should consult with their medical providers prior to taking any action based on information shared on this podcast. The materials linked to this podcast are at the user's own risk, and the content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice or to establishing a standard of care, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. In no way does reading, listening, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish any kind of doctor-patient relationship. Thank you.